Arthuro Valley had lain untouched for millennia or more. Rolling hills covered densely in green grass stretched for miles in all directions, only briefly being interrupted by one of the maple trees that spot the landscape. Staking through the valley, cutting it directly in half, is a clear stream, a natural watering and resting spot for the valley's fauna. In the fall, as the clouds hang lower and thicker, the leaves turn bright red, and for a few weeks at a distance, it looks as though small, luminous infernos have burst from the ground, standing contrast to the dull green of the grass and the dreary gray of the sky. Then in the spring, as the snow clears, green would return to the valley, below a bright blue sky. This continued season after season and year after year. A few hundred miles to the east lay the towns and cities, and though they began small, over time the population had grown, forcing many of the inhabitants to seek their futures elsewhere. It was long before Thoreau Valley, with its green hills and soft soil, became a new home for dozens of settlers. In time, those settlements that were created, mainly scattered agricultural communities, would transform into their own cities and towns. And for many generations, the communities thrived within the valley. But the prosperity didn't last forever, and over time, the towns and the settlements' population began to dwindle. The reason for their departure remains unclear. All that is left now are a few families, some collapsing farmhouses, and their stories. In this episode of Dark Stories from the Campfire, we'll explore a few of the stories as told to us by the last remaining locals over Thorough Valley. For our first story, we present to you an antique clock. Every other spring, a worn green carriage, pulled by aging horses, would slowly make its way down King Street towards the courthouse in the center of town. It was there, as the townfolk, momentarily ceasing their daily activities, gathered to watch, that the driver, an elderly gentleman, would step down from his carriage and begin to set up his shop. It wasn't much, actually. Usually a few trinkets, various articles of clothing, and some children's toys, but all were novel and not available in the local shops. As soon as the proprietor of the shop, that is, the driver of the carriage, had situated himself behind his desk, ledger open, he would ring a bell, indicating that he was now ready for the customers. The crowd, once clumped together here and there throughout the road, coalesced around the carriage, curious as to what goods were available. Throughout the afternoon, the crowd grew and shrank and grew again, as the town folks haggled over the prices for the goods, then either retreating entirely or to leave, returning only to pay the negotiated price or to barter some more. And while most of the conversation swirled around clothing or utensils, there was one item that seemed to have been overlooked, an item that immediately caught the eye of Marie Anne as soon as she made her way to the front of the crowd, and that was of an antique clock. Marie-Anne thought the clock handsome enough, with its dark bronze finish, intricately laced faceplate with copper-fitted hands, and two fawns etched into the base. Delicately, she picked it up to listen, shook it gently, then listened some more. Not a sound was heard. The proprietor, noticing her interest in the clock, leaned over from his table and informed her that to his great disappointment, the clock did not function. Where did you acquire the piece? Marie-Anne inquired. Perhaps the previous owner has some way of restoring the clock to its original condition. Nay, replied the older gentleman, for I not know who owned it before. It was on the opposite side of the valley that I came upon another traveling tradesman who insisted that I take the clock for a bit of water and food. 
It's a good enough clock despite its lack of functionality. But if I could get a few silver coins for it, at a great discount of course, then I will be satisfied enough. Marie-Anne thought for some time. It was a good enough clock, an almost perfect decorative piece for the mantle in her bedroom. At length she agreed to the price of the few silver coins before tucking the clock under her arms and making her way home. The clock looked perfect on the mantle, just as she thought it would. That evening, Brianne built a fire and pulled up a chair next to it to read a while before going to bed, but also so she could adore her new clock for a little while longer. It wasn't long before she became tired and, closing her book, retired to her bed for the evening, which was only a few feet from the lit hearth. Marie-Anne had only been asleep for a few hours before she was awoken, by the chiming of the clock. Marie-Anne pulled herself up in bewilderment of the chimes, as it rang out three times, followed by a short melody. However, no sooner had the clock stopped that something tumbled down the chimney, hitting the still-burning fire with such force that it spread ashes and embers across the floor. Exiting the fireplace, Marie-Anne could hear something bounce off the wooden floor and against the chair, pushing it backwards. Pulling the blankets up to her face, Marie-Anne was half frozen in terror, and as she watched the chair resume its original position in front of the fire, she broke out into a cold sweat. The remaining flames twisted and parted, as though some gentle gust of wind was passing between them, and after a while breath was heard coming from the chair before the fire. Save for the breathing, the room was silent. At the half hour, the clock chimed once more. Again, three loud rings before the melody played. This time, however, the fire became still, as the breathing had moved from the chair to the wall next to her bed. In the little that she was able to move, Marie-Anne pressed her eyes, eager to see a shadow, a figure, a spirit, anything that could explain the cause of what was transpiring in her chambers. But all she could see was a flat wall, and from the wall, breath, sometimes so strong it would sweep across her cheek. Again, on the hour the clock struck, playing out its rings and melody. However, this time, Rianne was not frozen, for once she felt the breath above her head, she fled the room, out of the house, finding safety at a neighbor's, where, between shaking hands, she recounted her horror. The following morning, on the road a few miles out of town, she was spotted talking with a farmer heading off to market. She was begging for food and water, insisting that the clock was a fair trade. That day, Marie-Anne left the valley, never to be seen again. About a year later, stories started to emerge from the south point of the valley about an antique clock and a banker's experience with an unknown entity. For our second story, we present Sir Reginald's portrait. No one can recall who Sir Reginald was exactly. A soldier, maybe perhaps a noble from long ago. But while the subject remains a mystery, his painting is well known throughout the valley, for it has been rumored that tragic consequences always seem to follow the painting. The portrait, as far as anyone could remember, entered the valley around 200 years earlier. It was owned by Marshall Wright and his wife, Ethel. With them, they brought two young boys. Rather than becoming farmers like most of their neighbors, the couple decided to open a much needed hardware store. To spruce the place up a bit, or to give the place a little more class as some believed, 
Marshall hung the portrait of Sir Reginald behind the counter for all to see. The store was clean and quickly gained a reputation for their fair prices, which were sorely lacking in the valley. And while Marshall and Ethel's customers had no issue with the shop they kept, they would share with each other how unnerving the portrait made them feel. One afternoon, as a neighbor was waiting for Marshall to fix a broken tool, he revealed to Marshall that the portrait gave off an airy feeling. Marshall seemed surprised, for he had owned the painting for several years, and not once had anyone ever told him about feeling uncomfortable in its presence. Still, in an act to stay neighborly and not to scare anybody off, Marshall removed the painting from behind the counter, placing it in the back storage. The following day, when word reached Marshall that a few of his livestock had escaped from their pen, he saddled his horse to pursue them. During the chase, the horse unfortunately slipped on a patch of wet grass in the valley slope, and tragically Marshall was thrown off, tumbling down the hill. By the time Marshall's back collided with one of the maple trees 100 feet down, he was dead. In order to raise money for his funeral, his grieving widow sold the portrait to a prosperous landowner who hung it in his dining room of his large house, where it hung undisturbed for nearly a year. Following a powerful storm, much of the landlord's house was damaged, and in order for the carpenters to properly make the repairs, the landlord removed the portrait from where it was hung. The following evening, the landlord, who already had a bad reputation of heavily drinking and gambling, found himself engaged in a heated argument with another gentleman over a game of poker. The landlord had been accused of cheating. For several minutes, the two traded barbs. But it was the landlord's laughter at the last insult that drew his accuser over the line. Reaching to his waistcoat and producing a pistol, the landlord's adversary fired a single round into his neck. The landlord frantically grasped at his neck, trying to locate the wound and stop the bleeding but it was all in vain. Slipping to the ground, the landlord died. Having no heir to handle his estate, and therefore no one to pay the workers making repairs, the half-crumbling house remained vacant, and the portrait remained untouched. That is, until a traveling salesman came upon the painting while scavenging the house for sellable goods. Sir Reginald's portrait then became property of the Reverend Samuel Goodwith and his wife, Miriam. Miriam thought the painting ugly, so the reverend kept in his study within their home. Samuel was old, however, and as the years passed, he required more and more assistance, especially with preparing his Sunday sermon. This duty fell to Miriam, and though she was more than happy to assist her husband, the portrait hanging in the study made it harder to do so, for it made her feel uncomfortable. One day, as the reverend was out on his walk, Miriam removed the painting, stowing it behind one of the bookcases, hoping that its absence would go unnoticed. The following morning, as Miriam entered the garden to pick flowers for the dining room table, the chickens became nervous, running around beneath her feet. The commotion forced Miriam to lose her balance, and slipping on one of the chickens, she fell forward into the picket fence surrounding the garden, piercing her lung. Two hours later, the reverend found her. She had suffocated to death. The stories continued throughout the valley, until the portrait became lost to history, presumably consumed in a mysterious house fire. Though, as the wreckage was being cleared away, the portrait of Sir Reginald was not found among the debris. And for our final story, we present to you, Listeners of the Dead. Lady Pembroke lived upon the hill of the western slopes in a large mansion. She had lived there as long as anyone could remember, maybe longer even perhaps to the original settlements, if that were possible. 
Nonetheless, she mainly kept to herself, only appearing in town on rare occasions. When seen, the town folks politely bowed their heads towards her before carrying on their way. The town sought not her visits, and in return she never sought theirs, nor called upon them before it was necessary. Never once was a visitor seen about the manor, so it stood dark in distance. Save for once a year, when appeared all the lights in the manor had been turned on, and voices could be heard, and figures in the window. So it happened one year that a reporter, passing by town on the way to an assignment, noticed the house was lit up. Stopping for a moment, the reporter watched the figures move about the house, and from time to time, for a brief second or two, he listened to their voices as the wind carried them down the hill towards him. What a fine party, the reporter thought to himself. Taking out his notebook, he jotted down his location, and a few notes on what he observed, promising himself to return the same time the following year. Small community stories always sold well in the city, plus they were easy to write. The reporter lingered for a few minutes longer before riding off. A year later, to the day, the reporter returned to the town and again noticed the manor lit up. But before heading up the hill, the reporter decided to stop off at the tavern for a quick drink and to stretch his legs after such a long ride. But to his surprise, the tavern was nearly full though the atmosphere was less jovial than one would expect. In fact, most of the patrons had their head down, as if sulking and sipping their drinks. Every so often, one of them would slightly turn their head towards the direction of Lady Pembroke's manor, before dipping their head further down. The reporter approached the bar and ordered a drink. Waiting for the whiskey to be poured, the reporter turned to the person to his right and asked why Evan was so sullen, especially since there seemed to be a party happening upon the hill. The patron did not answer but turned their back and shrunk away. Unfazed, the reporter spun to his left, this time asking again why the gloomy mood, adding an inquiry on how one gets invited to the party up the manor. For some time, the tavern remained silent, and not a single individual made eye contact with the reporter. Finally, at a table by his side, a patron stood up and walked over to the reporter. Oh, my dear fellow, you are sadly mistaken, the patron said. There have been no parties in Lady Prembrook's Manor for some time. But how can that be? asked the reporter. There is one happening at present. I can hear them as we speak, and I am sure I heard one last year as well, around the same time as I was passing through. Nay, the patron answered, his face falling. What you are listening to is the voices of the dead departing this earth.